You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I aged. I discovered that I know too much about Degrassi the Next Generation for some reason. I had a work event in which I told too many people that I work with that this podcast exists, which was a lazily kept secret, but a secret nonetheless. But that's what happens when I'm given access to plentiful Pliny the Elder that I don't have to pay for. So I paid for it in a different way. If not with money, then with secrets. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Saw X and The Creator. Like I said a few weeks back, I've got a mostly love but also some hate relationship with the Saw franchise. This new one actually succeeds, however, in telling a story like what Spiral tried to do a few years ago, the Chris Rock one. Saw X is character-driven, the deaths are violent and fresh, if you can believe it, and the film shows a new side to the killer Jigsaw. I was absolutely floored when I saw this film had an 82% Rotten Tomato score. It may not be that high anymore, but last weekend when I saw it, that's what it was at. So I had to know why. I was a little cuspy on seeing the saws in theaters because it's sometimes it's a lot, especially for anxiety ridden people like me. But uh, yeah, damn, it was good. I loved it. It's this interesting. I was thinking about it in the car this morning. It's an interesting mix between like... The pretentiousness of an A24 and a commercial horror film and the exploitative nature of the Saw. It's like a if they were all like a little circle in a Venn diagram, Saw X is the dead center. I I couldn't believe it. I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, this is this is actually like a legitimately good movie, not just a good horror movie. It's a good movie. I can't I can't believe it. I'll be seeing that one multiple times and not just for a refresher before a new Saw movie comes back. I can't I can't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Then there's The Creator, which is a sci-fi film based on, get this, nothing. A Hollywood studio actually took a chance on a new IP that didn't that was un- completely untested. Was it worth it? Yeah. I liked it overall. I thought the world was really, really flushed out and interesting and terrifyingly plausible. But the story in which they decided to show this world was a little lackluster, at least to me. I thought it was worth seeing in a theater because the sound mixing's pretty cool in parts. But I think it'll have legs in the long term when it's it's just hard to launch something like that in theaters these days. And while John David Washington, the the lead, is relatively established in this industry and he is a Nepo baby, he's Denzel Washington's son, those things don't drive people to the box office. So it's it was tricky. Good for I think it was uh, might have been 20th Century Studios. It's Disney. Disney owns it. 
it. So good on them for actually taking a risk on something that wasn't a live action remake of an animated film. But, you know, it just still I know numbers wise it didn't do what it was supposed to do. If it was like if this was a mid 2000s movie, it would have been a banger at the box office. But unfortunately, it's a post pandemic film and those by their nature are a little bit tricky. Strike updates. So as you're probably aware, this writer's strike is over, with many saying that it was the writers that won the strike. But time will honestly tell once the new things get implemented. It's easy to be like, well, they got what they wanted, so they won. But if I know anything from working in this industry for the last however many years it's been, it's one thing to promise something and it's another thing to actually get it. And the number of people that I think are going to benefit from that deal are going to be significantly less because of what they're asking for. It's going to lead to less content, which just by its nature is going to lead to more jobs, less jobs rather. And I don't know if you can call it a win if you got better jobs for people that were already pretty financially stable and the people that were kind of middling are going to get less work, which are the people who arguably needed a better deal because a lot of people are saying that the deals, like a lot of people, a lot more people had studio deals in the age of streaming just because there was more stuff getting made. And now that that's reduced, all of these writers contracts, I think are going to start lapsing and I don't think they're going to get renewed. There's a lot of people making that prediction. So they're calling it in the moment. I think it's going to take time to actually see who wins this from a practical side. I'm just I'm I'm cynical, but that's just my opinion. But as far as like what was what the ground that was won or whatever, the biggest and newest wins are probably the streaming bonuses, which will be given to writers on a show or film made for streaming, not something that's licensed that's different. Basically, if something is watched by 20% of a subscriber base in the first 90 days of its release and it was made for streaming, whether it be a TV show, a movie, I think stand-ups included in this, I'd have to double check, but they'll get a little extra and it's a set amount of money and that will be split amongst the writers. It's one amount of money split amongst however many there are. So like something like Suits, which is licensed to Netflix, so therefore Netflix does not do its residuals, and it was made for something else. It was made for, I believe, USA. That will not get this bonus because it was not made for that platform. So that's kind of how that works. I hope that make, it makes sense to me. But I also work very adjacent to a lot of this stuff. So more of this makes sense to me now. And I'm just rambling and also trying not to fuck around with my NDA. Um, AI restrictions are were added as well, including the fact that an idea for a film or television show cannot come from AI. Writers can use AI as a tool, but the AI cannot actually write because AI material is not copyrightable. There's also some wiggle room for the studios and the writers to experiment with it over the next three years and see kind of how it is going to look in the future of the industry. Then, of course, they've got the raises and such, which is pretty standard. As far as the actor strike goes... SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP returned to the table this week with several of the studio heads joining in on the talks, which is what the AMPTP exists to keep from happening. They're supposed to be able to do this without them. But as we've seen in the last few months, doesn't really work out that way, or at least not with this particular set of demands. Given that the writer's contract is more than likely going to serve as a template for the SAG deal, I'm guessing everyone will be back to work if, if we're still, if the actors are still striking by Thanksgiving, hell, if they're still striking by Halloween, I would be surprised and something, something weird's going on. They'll be back at the table on Monday. So hopefully when I'm talking to this microphone next Sunday, I will, uh, I will have a uh, hooray. It's over. So yeah, now that I've rambled on for nearly 10 minutes before editing onto this month's topic. 
I think it was back in April that All Things Mainly, I believe is the username, stated in a lovely review. Thank you, by the way. I was bad about that back in the spring. Uh, that they wanted to see the return of this particular series. And I didn't want to spoil anything, but I already had this scheduled and it's time to jump back in to this particular series. And that is when we cover the life of a director and some of the major films that they've directed. I was going to do that. But once I started researching Alfred Hitchcock, it became very clear that this man's life and his films are just completely intertwined. I All the sources I was looking at, it's very hard to separate the man from his films. And I didn't want to do one of my favorite directors a disservice by trying to cut it up in even nice, even things to fit a format. I just decided to roll with it. So we're going to shift it a little bit. And instead of doing like a quick run on his life, which just was not... <laughs> It was very, very hard to like shorten it down. So I stopped trying and just thankfully I had a week to figure it out an extra week. But we're going to we're going to do his life in chunks and we're going to do the film, the films as we go. So this whole month is about Alfred Hitchcock and his life and his films. It's just less broken up than like when we did Coppola last year. So this week we're covering the early years and first films of Alfred Hitchcock. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Alfred Joseph Hitchcock was born on August 13th, 1899, in the apartment above his parents' leased greengrocers, like a vegetable fruit stand for the non-English in the, in the crowd, in an area that is now part of East London. He was the third child of Emma Jane and William Hitchcock. Hitchcock would later describe himself in his early years as a well-behaved boy. His father called him his, quote, little lamb without a spot. One of Hitchcock's favorite stories for interviews about his early life dealt with his father sending him to the local police station with a note when he was five. After reading it, the policeman locked little Alfred into a cell for a few minutes, saying, quote, this is what we do to naughty boys before letting him out. The experience, if true, left Hitchcock with a lifelong phobia of law enforcement, so much so that he would refuse to even drive a car lest he get a parking ticket. This story is a staple in Hitchcock lore and one he told repeatedly throughout his life, not only to journalists, but also to his colleagues. Also from this experience came a common theme explored in several of his films over the years, that of guilt. The Hitchcocks were also a Roman Catholic family, and all my fellow current or former Catholics can confirm that guilt is a big part of that credo, so this dude was just getting it from all sides. From an early age, Hitchcock was a watcher and a loner of sorts. He would recall not having friends for the majority of his early years. Even when presented with the opportunity to socialize with children of his own age, by Hitchcock's own recollection, he preferred to play alone in the corner. This led, of course, to a vibrant inner fantasy life, one that would serve the director later on. You either become a serial killer like this or apparently a very good director, and I don't think there's much of a middle ground in betwixt those. When Hitchcock was six, the family moved and leased two stores at which they ran a fish and chip shop and a fishmonger's. The family moved again as the monger business had grown to include a fishery, so the family relocated to Poplar, where that customer base apparently was. 
There, Hitchcock was sent to a Jesuit grammar school called St. Ignatius, which had a reputation for corporal punishment. The priests liked to use a flat, hard, springy tool known as a furula, which was for smacking the palm of your hand. The punishments were always given at the end of the day, so the boys had to sit through classes anticipating the punishment if they had been written up for it, which is just more psychological torture. Hitchcock would later say that this is where he developed his sense of fear. Hitchcock's favorite subject at this time was geography, and he furthered an already budding interest in maps and the timetables of trains, trams, and buses. He could allegedly recite all the stops on the Orient Express. I tried to find them all. I could not get like a hardcore answer, but apparently it's a lot. He also liked the London trams, which is why a ton of his films feature rail or tram scenes. And later in life, when he would be on set, when uh, Clappard showed the number of a scene and the number of takes, Hitchcock would often take the two numbers and whisper the London tram route names. The example on the Wikipedia page was that if the Clappard showed scene 23, take three, for example, he would whisper... Woodford, Hampstead, Woodford being the terminus of the Route 23 tram and Hampstead the end of Route 3. During what would be his last year at St. Ignatius, Hitchcock turned into a little troublemaker. One of his favorite pranks was taking eggs from the priest's hen houses and then chucking them at the priest's windows. In addition to that, Hitchcock would also spend the majority of his free time at the courthouse watching murder trials and taking notes. Then he'd head over to the Black Museum at Scotland Yard to eye old crime relics and learn about criminal methods and criminal psychology. Throughout his life, he'd visit similar places the world over. Hitchcock was a true crime fiend, I'm sure no one listening is surprised to learn. While killers like Jack the Ripper would have a lasting impression on him and inspire later works, the killer who had the greatest impact on Hitchcock's work was John Reginald Halliday Christie. If you don't know him, he was a sad little man who killed eight women and hid them in the floors and walls, amongst other places, of his flat. There was a Tim Roth BBC, I think it was Tim Roth and I think it was BBC miniseries about this dude that came out a few years ago. Knowing this person and knowing like Hitchcock villains, I definitely see the similarities betwixt the two now that it's been presented to me in hindsight. I'll put the show I liked about this dude, well liked as a, huh, um, in the watch list for this week if you want to check it out. But it's, it's interesting if you're familiar with Hitchcock's work to see the, the parallels. Hitchcock told his parents that he wanted to be an engineer, so he left the Jesuit school and formal education behind, enrolling in night classes at the London County Council School of Engineering and Navigation. There he studied, quote, mechanics, electricity, acoustics, and navigation. On December 12, 1914, Hitchcock's father, who had been suffering from emphysema and kidney disease, died at the age of 52. While the two had not been terribly close, the loss was devastating to Hitchcock all the same. Much of what happened to young Hitchcock during this time is unknown, as he was incredibly secretive about it, despite his candor in most other topics. In fact, that was the case when talking about either of his parents. He was very secretive about them. What we do know is that to support himself and his mother, his older siblings were all out of the house by this time as they were quite a bit older, Hitchcock took a job for 15 shillings a week as a technical clerk at a telegraph company called Henley's in 1915. He continued his night classes, shifting focus to art history, painting, econ, and political science. Meanwhile, his older brother stepped in to run the family shops. 
Hitchcock had been too young to enlist when World War I started in July 1914, and when he reached the required age of 18 in 1917, he received a C3 classification, which meant he was healthy but should only be assigned sedentary work. He joined a cadet regiment of the Royal Engineers, where he took place in theoretical briefings, weekend drills, and exercises. The Hitchcock home would once be hit with artillery fire, but other than that, the family was mostly spared from the harsher realities of that particular war. At Henley's, Hitchcock's quiet intensity caught the interest of his supervisor, who saw potential in the young man. He transferred Hitchcock out of the technical side of the business and into advertising. By this time, Hitchcock had become a devoted cinephile. He was a huge fan of Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, and actually preferred American films over British ones due to their technological advancements. From the age of 16, he would start reading the trade papers and began devouring films, novels, and theater from around the world. After the war, Hitchcock took an interest in creative writing. In June 1919, he became a founding editor and business manager of Henley's in-house publication, The Henley Telegraph, to which he submitted several of his short stories. Henley's promoted him further, and he soon wrote and drew graphics for electrical cable advertisements. Hitchcock enjoyed the job and would stay late at the office to examine the proofs, and he would later view this as his, quote, first step toward cinema. While still in Henley's, Hitchcock read in a trade paper that famous Players Lasky, the production arm of Paramount at this time, was opening a studio in London. They were planning to shoot a film called The Sorrows of Satan as their first feature there. As luck would have it, Hitchcock was in the middle of reading the book of the same name on which the film would be based. Hitchcock produced some drawings for the title cards and sent his work to the studio. They hired him, and in 1919, he began working as a title card designer part-time while continuing to work at Henley's until 1920 when he was brought on for full-time employment. From 1920 to 1922, Hitchcock designed the title cards for nearly all famous player Lasky productions, while also helping crews with diagrams of sets, basically like the math bits. He also got used to the quote-unquote American style of work, as the majority of his co-workers were transplants from across the pond. Hitchcock quickly became the go-to guy, whether it be design issues, story issues, or even costume snafus. The dude always seemed to have a genius answer that solved the problem at hand. 1922 saw director George Fitzmaurice directing two films at the Islington studio, which is where famous player Lasky was based, and this dude would have a major impact on Hitchcock. From him, the future director learned how to look for proper lighting, Fitzmaurice's methods for constructing a well-formed script, and arguably most importantly, how to conduct oneself while working in the chaotic environment of a film set. The two often met for dinner at the pub after work, and for probably one of the first times in his life, Hitchcock had something that resembled a social life. Those lessons would quickly come in handy as Hitchcock was brought on to finish directing the film Always Tell Your Wife not long after. This work went uncredited, of course, and only one reel of the two-reeler still exists to this day. The work was enough to get him another gig directing, a comedy called Number 13, which was never finished. Because, after only a few years, funds had grown thin at Islington, and slowly but surely, operations began to close down. 
The films that had been made in the country had been received terribly, so the studio heads saw no reason to continue. The directors and some talent deemed worth keeping, not Hitchcock, were exported to the States and everybody else lost their jobs. Hitchcock would not find himself in the director's chair again for several years. Hitchcock was soon hired as an assistant director by a new production company ran by a man named Michael Balkin. Balkin and his business partner, Victor Saville, had founded Victory Films in 1920 in Birmingham, and along with director Graham Cutts, they decided to enter commercial films after years of doing advertising. Their first film, Woman to Woman, was the film that hired Mr. Alfred Hitchcock as an assistant director. He also did uncredited writing and art direction on the film. Woman to Woman, shot on the Islington studio lot in the summer of 1923, was received with massive critical acclaim and was Hitchcock's first film that he really felt he'd had a hand in creating. Hitchcock was so eager to become a director and loved film so deeply that he pretty much took up any work he could get during these years, as long as it was in film. Woman to Woman also had another long-term effect on him, as the editor and quote-unquote script girl on that film was Alma Revel, his future wife. The two had worked together at Islington before that, and Hitchcock had brought her onto this film on which they bonded. The Woman to Woman crew rushed another film with basically the exact same cast and crew for The White Shadow, which flopped. Probably didn't help that they marketed the film with the line, quote, the same star, producer, author, hero, cameraman, scenic artist, staff, studio, renting company as Woman to Woman. Audiences already saw that movie, so why would they go to another one that was just that one again when they could just go see something they hadn't seen before? A third film, The Prude's Fall, was made before the original partnership was dissolved, as this grouping was clearly not working. Basically, Saville left, and then it was just Cuts and Balkan left. Cuts believed one of the biggest problems was Hitchcock, but not in the way you'd think. On the productions, Cuts would complain to Balkan that Hitchcock was being spread too thin. Balkan disagreed, as he found the young man to be serious yet cheerful and a promising talent. He was also cheap, since he was doing the work of at least three people for one salary. In 1924, after renting it out for several years, famous players placed the Islington studio up for sale. After a series of negotiations, Balkan bought the studio and renamed the whole enterprise Gainsborough Pictures. There, Hitchcock would write scripts, design costumes, and provide production management, all the while doing the job he was actually hired to do, which was assistant directing, which I'm realizing now is a job we definitely need to do when I decide to do another job series. They essentially, to completely oversimplify, are like the schedule keepers and speak to the -the below-the-line talent the director doesn't have time to talk to on a day-to-day basis. They're essentially a right-hand type to the director. They they basically, they assist the director in, they're not like a traditional assistant, they, they kind of oversee the day-to-day stuff that's not, like, fun and creative. They have to do, like, all the schlub work, basically. So the director can just be, like, a creative vision on set. Unfortunately, no copies of the films that Hitchcock did this work on survive in their full versions. Slowly but surely, Graham Cutts was overshadowed by his assistant director. Didn't help that Cutts' private life as a new father and a man with a new mistress was pulling his focus and creating all kinds of drama. Within a decade, the roles would be irrevocably reversed. Cutts was desperately seeking day work, and Hitchcock felt very little need to provide his former boss with a paycheck, because he was real sloppy. 
The shift began during the production of the film The Prude's Fall, when drama involving Cutts' mistress forced the entire crew to return to London without a shot foot of film. They were supposed to shoot the entire film abroad in Europe, like mainland Europe. Hitchcock, however, came back with some ideas as to how the entire film could be shot within Islington's walls. Whatever that was, I could not find a solid source. But what we do know is that even with Hitchcock's ideas, the film was still uh, reviewed quite poorly. Hitchcock also came back from that trip with a fiancé and Alma Revel, shattering his co-workers' beliefs that Hitchcock would be an eternal bachelor. He had proposed while the two were in their bunks on a ship from Germany to England. Their engagement was a long one for that era, as Hitchcock did not want to marry his fiancée until he was a proper director. Hitchcock would see himself spending more and more time in Germany, first while working on the film The Blackguard as Cuts is AD, which was a co-production with a German production company. During that time, Hitchcock watched part of the making of F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh from 1924, while Cuts, a studio over, was for one reason or another causing delays in the Blackguard's production. Murnau and Hitchcock had a conversation after shooting Wrapped one day, and the very next day, Hitchcock took that inspiration he got from Murnau to design sets for Blackguard. He would continue to use many of his techniques for the set design in his own future productions. And Hitchcock was in Germany during the German Expressionist era, an artistic movement that emphasized the artist's inner emotions rather than attempting to replicate reality. German Expressionist films rejected cinematic realism and used visual distortions and hyper-expressive performances to reflect inner conflicts. Those of you not into 1920s German films, for general vibe, think like the afterlife hallway scene in Beetlejuice. Those crazy angles are highly indicative of German expressionist architecture. The movement was in response to the devastation, both literally and psychologically, that had been inflicted on the German people after World War I. To completely just gloss over the whole war and all the all the stuff and just completely oversimplify. If you're bad at history, Germany was basically forced to take full responsibility for that war. And as a result, the German people suffered extensively because basically Germany was told they had to like pay everybody back for all the bullshit. Soon that suffering translated into their arts, leading to a manic style that depicted the inner pain outside of the body. No other film market in the world at this time had even a tenuous grasp of this notion. Hitchcock would later state, quote, My models were forever after the German filmmakers of 1924 and 1925. They were trying very hard to express ideas in purely visual terms. The Blackguard crew returned to London in early 1925, with Hitchcock now fully engrossed in German theater and with a love of the Grimm's fairy tales. Cuts and Hitchcock's working relationship had continued to sour as Cuts got worse and worse at his job as his depression worsened and basically kind of they were like a seesaw. As Cuts fell, his assistant's talent rose and consistently outshone his own. This led to Balkan having to do what frankly was an inevitability. British cinema at this time was at a crossroads. The first film critics popped up and a film society had been formed by the mid-1920s. Film was becoming popular in the country and was slowly but surely being considered an art form and not just a means of entertainment. So much so that the king and queen had taken notice, as well as their son, the Prince of Wales. One thing that was obvious to everyone, however, was that British films were ghastly when compared to their far more popular American Brethren's films. Directors like Cecil B. DeMille's names would appear a 
above their film's title on the marquee, signaling to the public at large the quality of a film. Hitchcock believed that this was crucial when selling a movie. It was a director's export, not a star's or studio's or even a writer's. Whatever you were seeing slapped on that silver screen was the director's vision above all else. This is likely one of the reasons Hitchcock made himself a figure in the majority of his films with his cameos. At this point in our story, the current stable of British directors did not have that DeMille power, plus their content overall was pretty tired. It was obvious to a lot of people, Balkan included, that it was time for something new. Hitchcock's diligent work in the pictures, coupled with the changing tide and attitudes surrounding the art form, finally opened the door for Hitchcock to get a chance to direct, something he claimed to never have asked for. He'd merely bided his time. Quote, I never volunteered to direct, he later claimed. Quote, I was the victim of studio politics. Balkan recalls Hitchcock's journey to this stage a little differently, however, as Hitchcock had slowly but quite assuredly began taking over each and every one of Cut's productions. What was Hitchcock's motive if not to one day sit in the big chair? Why would you put all that work on yourself if that's not what you wanted? To everyone working on a Cut's film, it was apparent that Hitchcock was working towards this job, even if he wasn't shouting it from the rooftops verbally. Balkan knew that Hitchcock was ready, but the hurdle now was trying to get financing for a film directed by an untested 25-year-old. The answer lay in Germany. Balkan set up two films for Hitchcock to direct in Germany where the financial risk would be much less. If they turned out to be hits, then it would be easier to sell Hitchcock as a full-fledged director in the UK. An English crew was assembled, including Alma as his AD, and they set course for Deutschland. Those first days in Germany trying to get the film on its feet were quite rough. Alma went off to secure their lead actress, who would be an American, and found out that that particular pool of talent expected an extravagant, therefore expensive, living situation for the duration of shooting. The film stock was confiscated as it had not been claimed on a border crossing card into Austria. Acquiring new film stock was depressingly expensive when dealing with post-war exchange rates. Then, Hitchcock's room was broken into, and the cash he'd left there was stolen. Taxes and tariffs and all matter of other little financial things continued popping up to where they had to end up getting money wired to them to just basically function. Somehow, the show went on. During one of the first days of shooting, and this has nothing to do with really anything, but I thought this was hilarious and a real hardcore example of how oblivious Hitchcock was about certain things because of his hyper-focus with art and cinema and all the things. His lead actress stated that she could not go into the water. When Hitchcock pressed as to why this woman was refusing to do her job, he was informed it was because she was on her period. Mr. 25-year-old antisocial with a Jesuit education and a fiancé had never heard of menstruation. <laughs> a double was then used to shoot the scene. I just, I, I giggled for like a solid five minutes when I heard that. So I thought I'd share that little anecdote. By some miracle, 1925's The Pleasure Garden was completed and partially saved within the edit thanks to Alma and Hitchcock's masterful storytelling skills. By the time Balkan arrived in Munich, where they had edited the final film, he was shown a movie that didn't look like a British film. Nay, nay. It looked like an American film. Balkan told Hitchcock that if he could shoot one more German-Anglo film, that there'd be three films waiting for him at home to direct. That second film was called The Mountain Eagle, which was shot in the fall of 1925 and was about hillbillies in Kentucky, of all things. 
The Motley crew returned to London in January 1926, about six, seven months after they'd left. Balkan set out to get the films distributed, which turned out to be easier said than done. The Pleasure Room was shelved indefinitely due to some critics who had seen it, believing that this heavily German-inspired film would affect Balkan's ability to further get his films released in British theaters. Hitchcock pouted for about two weeks, and in April of 1925, he was summoned by Balkan to direct an adaptation of a 1913 mystery novel. And things would never be the same for Mr. Hitchcock. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee. I just got home from a brunch screening of Sleepy Hollow, the 98 movie. So I am caffeinated to the max. So if I seem perkier than usual, that is why. But I always think I sound perkier live than it actually records. So that could just be me. But the, the if I'm talking, fa- it's more like if I'm talking faster, that's why I'm definitely talking faster this week. But yeah, uh, Alamo Drafthouse, my new second home. Excellent coffee. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, we spend some time looking at Hitchcock and the films he made during his UK years. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.